Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Rob Observations. Rob Observations, where we crash all the comic books, all the pop culture, film, streaming, television, books, adaptations, toys, records, um, whatever it, it has a comic book in it. We're, we're jamming on it. We're connecting it somehow to to the bigger picture. And man, that picture is getting bigger every day. I hope you guys uh, are, are, this finds you well. I hope you're doing great. Um, very, very exciting times that we are living in today. We are going to cover one of my favorite subjects, and that's the Brits, uh, the, the 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 Englishmen who have, and and some Scotsmen, Scotsmen who have uh, who have very very much defined uh, modern comic books. And uh, boy, the, 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 this will be a multi-part deal because they certainly have contributed um, a fair share of really. Fantastic work. I mean, a uh, huge fan here. You're gonna, you're gonna. Um, every name that I cover, I, I have read much or something, or have have them on my shelf. But before we get to the British invasion, today's hot topic could not be more topical or more relevant. And it starts with last week's announcement. Uh, it it th- th- there was a breaking news. Breaking news. There was a serious new casting that was going on in one of the upcoming comic book television shows that Marvel is doing for their Disney Plus streaming initiative. And we love these shows. Of course, we, we, uh, we're consumed with them. I, WandaVision got me geeked out like no sh- show has, maybe since uh, Lost or before that, Twin Peaks. I loved all the all of the, uh, the Easter eggs, all of the deep cuts, I, it, it, mainly because... So much of what was in in Wandavision, and then was followed by Winter Soldier and Falcon, was that these are comic books that are that are still coming out from my youth. The the Vision and Scarlet Witch stuff was from the, I mean, literally like it, the entire era. Uh, dove in and touched on comic books from 1974 to 1985, and 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 beyond, like like 88 actually, because we, we went into West Coast Avengers. And Agatha Harkness and all that stuff and 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 stuff characters that were really special to me that were still unknown to most were being given a spotlight and I'm like wow I, I did I didn't it's the only time in the history of this podcast that I jumped on the day of and did a bonus episode and it was about Wanda's first training under Agatha Harkness and how that was an early comic for me and how it really leaned into Scarlet Witch whose powers are mutant based being now trained formally by this um, elder witch who had been up until that point and up until that issue on one certain page hands back the son of Reed and Sue Richards, Mister Miss Fantastic, Mister Fantastic and the Invisible Woman from Fantastic Four, and 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 says I'm no longer going to be his nanny. He's good. You've got this because she had been his nanny while they were off, uh, you know, traversing dimensions and other worlds in in, in their exploration as the Fantastic Four. And, and in this particular episode, Agatha Harkness turns her interest onto Wanda Maximoff, uh, the wife, or soon-to-be, and wife of Vision, uh, and her supernatural powers. And I mean, I was so excited that we were going to scratch that itch, and that Agatha Harkness was a thing, and so it was fun to revisit and expand. So that, that show really got me geeked up. Winter Soldier Falcon played very straight, um, very much like an action-adventure, kind of a, you know... 
a born identity, a born film without maybe a, some of the deeper twists and the turns. Definitely another series of Easter eggs. I wasn't as compelled by those. I loved seeing the U.S. agent take his um, place in the Marvel Universe. I thought Wyatt Russell was fantastic. And so now we're on to Loki, which I, I've only seen one episode as of this uh, podcast, but uh, great production values through the roof. And, and again, Tom Hiddleston is the biggest, uh, really the biggest of the actors and stars. He has legitimate box office success outside of Marvel, which while as fantastic as Anthony Mackie and uh, and Paul Bettany, uh, as fantastic as as these performers and these actors are, they they're not they haven't opened movies at the box office. And Tom Hiddleston is the closest thing we've gotten is the highest up the rung on the Disney uh, Plus series that 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 this guy has carried entire series, whether it was TNT's The Night Manager, which was an amazing adaptation adaptation of a terrific um, uh, spy novel, or his roles in in uh, in, in King Kong and uh, and and several other film film appearances that Tom Hiddleston he has he has legitimate box office so Loki feels like it's catering to the biggest star they've had so far because that one issue that one episode alone do you guys do that do you call episodes issues I do it all the time it, it's so funny um that Loki looks big and fantastic and is catering to it, it feels like the biggest um featured player the guy who has the biggest box office outside of his own Marvel success so far but here's the deal here's what what we're talking about the announcement came that a new character was being cast for an upcoming show which is the She-Hulk show uh that that is going to be airing possibly next year I don't if there is a, a definite premiere date on that I haven't seen it but I mean I, I know that She-Hulk is being made right now that Moon Knight is being made right now with Oscar Isaac it's all very exciting so many of these cool characters are coming our way but but there was an announcement that an actress forgive me it's not in front of me and really it's not about the actress it's really about the character and the and the and the and the ripple that the effect it had immediately but they were casting Titania Titania was being cast in She-Hulk Titania or for your you know tomato tomato purposes Titania look whatever it's all spelled the same Titania it's Titan with an I A okay Titania was first introduced in Secret Wars three. Secret Wars three, and uh, which was the big, biggest and most successful crossover event of all time and of its time. It broke the mold, and uh, and and everyone is still running to catch up. We've covered that in a dedicated, dedicated Secret Wars episode, which talks about the entire uh, origins of how it was a toy. Um, it was literally designed as a toy tie-in product that under the uh, kind of the uh, very keen production and crafting of Jim Shooter and the Marvel editor editorial staff became a runaway home run crossover success, one of the best-selling comic books of its time, clearly the best-selling comic of Jim Shooter's tenure while he was editor-in-chief and literally kicked open the door for an entire... Uh, I mean, all the eras that followed of these interconnected, uh, multi-tiered crossover events. Secret Wars started all. Titania, Titania in her kind of pink and uh, pink hair and pink costume is a is a physical match, a female warrior physical match 
before She-Hulk can go toe-to-toe with her. It makes all the sense in the world that they cast her. I'm, I look forward to seeing Titania. And let me put a pin in this real quick because now we're going to backtrack to two days prior to this announcement. We are at the dinner table and uh, I am catching up with my family. One of them had overheard a conversation I was having on the phone regarding one of our upcoming film projects, one of the upcoming film projects that I have, which is the film adaptation of Profit. Profit, if you have never heard of Profit, was a best-selling comic book that I had um, I published and have, have continued to publish in recent years uh, that launched in 1992. It will be turning 30 years old uh, next year. Image Comics turns 30 years old next year. All of your favorite, cool, juicy Image Comics um, information will be coming your way uh, via this podcast starting uh, January of, of 2022 because that's when the big 30 and that's when you get, you're going to get all the great stories. I literally have to stall until then. There's some great untold tales. I'm sure everybody has some, but you'll be hearing mine and my perspective of stuff that you have literally never heard aired before when this comes about. But Prophet uh, blew up in, the ni- in, in 1992. He appeared uh, in the pages of Youngblood and uh, Youngblood number two, the, the entire issue is centered on Prophet. Youngblood was my Fantastic Four vehicle in that Stan and Jack used Fantastic Four to um, to introduce so many concepts that would go and, and, and define and populate um, scope and, and populate the greater, you know, Marvel Universe, Black Panther, the Inhumans, okay? Uh Galactus, Silver Surfer. I mean, right there, just just those four became tent poles. They 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 became their own giant, significant tent poles in Marvel history. The Inhumans, Black Panther, Galactus, Silver Surfer, all of that stuff. Youngblood was like I was trying to emulate. Like, hey, especially after issue one, you know, um, I mean, uh, the, the, each issue I was trying to introduce a new concept, a new you know. A, a, a new different set of characters, the Berserkers, Prophet. In, in backup stories, there was Supreme. I really wanted to make it the showcase. We, we had a large audience base, over a million readers, over a million sales of Youngwood were being logged at a time that only these books were doing that. So so while we were, you know, I was riding that vehicle, I introduced John Prophet. Prophet went, went on to be such a success that, the, uh, that we launched his own book. And his own book, went on to, I got, I had the charts out last week because again, I'm sending these documents because there's, there's significant movement on the movie. And that's where this comes, comes around at the dinner table. And the reason I'm giving you this background on this is my kids don't have this. They're not equipped with this. They don't have the detailed information sales history of these characters, but I'm, I'm, they're asking me about profit, profit, which this time last year, we were fortunate enough to sign and the uber talented writer, Mark Guggenheim. He is a showrunner of multiple television shows. You know him probably best from his long tenure on Arrow and the Arrowverse and his masterful touch in bringing Oliver Queen to the masses and, and, and possibly the most celebrated of the, 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 the superhero TV shows, uh, of, of, of the last, of the last, you know, decade. I mean, th- th- this, this was a giant success. Mark is now the showrunner of the reboot, the relaunch of LA Law, which was a top show for NBC back in the 80s. And 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 uh, whether whether it was Harry Hamlin or Corbin Burnson or I mean just um just so many different giant talents, 
Blair Underwood all came from LA Law. It was a great show about this high, highfalutin uh, uh, Beverly Hills uh, law firm and all the different cases that they that they took on. There's a giant uh, new version of that show coming. Mark is the showrunner on that. In between all of this, Mark put everything he had into executing uh, the screenplay for Profit, and Profit turned out wonderfully. And and at and at present there is a director, and at present we are um, we are looking to cast the film and all of that and the details of that will at some point be made public. But those names are not known and they're not made public yet. But in discussing them around the dinner table, my son says, "Oh well, you know nobody knows who Prophet is, Dad. Nobody." Well, those are fighting words to me because I know that that is, in fact, not true because there are so many of you who love John Prophet, who loved Prophet, who bought him up, who bought his trading cards, his action figure. You you, you bought his posters, his prints. Um, we, we recently did a different version of him that launched in 2010 and wrapped in 2016, 2017, and it was a longstanding new vision of John Prophet. John Prophet was published over the last 25, 26, 30 years. And each version of him has always been a version that people seem to dig. He is, um, again, a very prominent comic book uh, property character. He, his recently artwork sales of profit pages are through the roof. Um, I, I, I track this stuff. Old, older issues are suddenly, and I don't know how it is that a comic book can sell as much as these comics did, but they're hard to find. Go try and find issues of the original profit run five eight six nine they're, they're not as easy to come by as you as you might think um they've cycled through maybe they've gone through stores collections they there's a store here in orange county that literally their back issue section is so gigantic it's like 30 back issue bins like back to back it's like a giant island but they start in the 2000s and that makes sense right that's 21 years of back issues. You want to go to the 90s? You want to go to the 80s? Some of the 70s and 80s stuff is only up on the wall. The inventory on that is very slight. I have friends who are in these Facebook groups. That's where they sell so many different comics. And in those groups, they talk about how inventory on 70s and 80s and now 90s books is so hard to come by. Is that because people are hoarding them? Is that because they've been cycled through? Did they get thrown away? I don't know, but that's just the, the fact of the matter. An entire store's giant island. I mean, this thing is like 15 feet by 10 feet. Um, of all these back issue bins, I was shocked. I was in there. I went in there thinking I would I would try this store out to look for some recent back, uh, for, for from back, some back issues of the Avengers when I was a kid. It's just in the area, decided to drop in. I always wanted to you know, I'll always give a, a store a try. Um, this store had relocated from another location. So I was trying out its new location and, and, and post-pandemic, they've opened the doors back up. The back issues are all from the 2000s. And, and again, that makes sense to me. It logically goes, there's, there's a lot of books that have come out in the 2000s considering how much uh, the, the, the publishers ramped up their output, okay? You've got, I mean, Marvel and DC started producing so many more books, Image, so many more books, Dark Horse, you know, Boom Studios. So so the stuff from the 90s is harder to get. Now, what's my point? My point is that when my son says nobody knows who that is, that means he doesn't know who that is. But, and where we're going with this is really the cultivation of what I call the expert, the cultivation of the expert. And this is where we go back and circle back to Titania. 
Now, is Profit more popular than Titania up until this point? Most certainly, absolutely. Has Titania ever had a series that sold 750,000 copies based on her name, Titania, like Profit has? No, okay? But is Titania now? So two days later, Titania gets gets announced as being part of She-Hulk. And my retailer buddies go casually the next day, hey, Rob, do you watch this all this action that went on with Titania, man? That book went from being three bucks to like, it's 50 bucks now. First appearance of Titania. Early appearances of Titania. Everyone's scrambling for. Everyone, I want to say this one more time. Titania. Titania. I don't care. It, it, what, you know, when, when, when Jim Shooter, who created her, tells me how to pronounce it, I'll listen to him. But she's been, she's been cast. She's going to be in live action, which gets all the oohs, all the ahs, and which moves the needle at least briefly. Here's a side note. My retailers stand by this. My retailer network of four to five guys that I, I, I listen to everything they say, they have been adamant with me, adamant that... That <laughs> that that if it is based on a villain, unless that villain turns into a good guy, whether it's first appearances of Apocalypse or whatever villain you want, they use Apocalypse a lot. That Apocalypse early appearances jumped up, and let's say let's say you paid a forty dollars, fifty dollars for a first appearance of Apocalypse, that is now down to fifteen, twenty bucks. I mean, like like they go villain prices never last. Hero prices are the ones you want to invest in. Villain prices. Are, are hot stocks in the short term, and then they go down. How dare you talk about comic books as stocks, Liefeld? I know, I know, but here's the deal. Like, they are, to a lot of people. It drives the market. Again, these Facebook groups where people see what they got at garage sales in order specifically to flip them. They are, and, and, and showing the race to answer um, ads that, that, are, that are put in the penny saver or, 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 or put online, and people race to get whatever is left of certain collections. Trust me, the, the, the flipping of the comic books is a giant thing. And, and, and we can't deny it. It's always been part of who the comic book industry is. And it's why first appearances in characters matter so much. In the last year, the Batman comic, the brilliant Batman comic, I love it, by James IV, um, uh, has, has, appear, has, has, has had several new characters come in. Ghostmaker, you know... Um, um, punchline all and and that's driving so much interest no one knows when the next hot new character is going to drop does this sound familiar the new mutants cable deadpool domino shatterstar you know the 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 six-pack grizzly kane this is something that fans they love to interact with new characters and if those new characters connect look out and right now we live in the in the world where Titania was never a hot character. I've been around since she was created. Titania never moved the needle, but she got cast live action. And what happens then is your YouTubers, they go, oh my gosh, they didn't know it until you, they found out about Titania at the same time you did. But they boot up that camera, they get on that YouTube and they're like, let's tell you about Titania because I've just Wikipedia all of this shit. And I know she appeared here, here, here. They didn't experience her. They didn't grow with the character. They didn't they weren't there in real time, but for sure, for sure, they are going to tell you everything you need to know based on the WikiLeaks that they just accessed because, and, 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 and all these different shows and all these different podcasts, and I was dedicated, that's not going to be what I do, but there is an entire business industry, Twitter, websites built around, you need to know about Titania, here's what we know right now about Titania, here's where she came from, here's where she's going, you guys know the model, You, some of you consume the model, it's it's great stuff to listen to, it gets you smarter, 
okay? But that, there is an entire audience that needs that because they want to level up to expert level on Titania immediately. They want to, in, in, in the matter of 45 minutes, an hour, faster maybe, be able to have educated conversations with lesser knowns and be the person that teaches them. There's an entire, you know, again, level of what I call, you know, leveling up to expert status, the expert level that they want to say, oh, no, and you're looking at this guy going, you're 18, you're 18. Titania appeared, um, Titania appeared 38 years ago? Or did, 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 did Titania, did Titania appear you know, 36 years ago, and you're telling me exactly how it all came about, and the last time, I, you just got hair on your face. You literally just entered puberty, but you are, now, I may have family members that resemble this. I may have friends of, of my kids who resemble this, but the, the race to level up. So Titania has now become the, the, the character du jour. Everyone wants a little bit of Titania because that is where the action is at. And, 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 and she's coming in live action and she's going to be on that She-Hulk show. And but trust me, by the time it hits, everyone is going to be exhausted with how much they know about these characters. But there'll still be a, a group who didn't bother to check in until now. And so after the first episode, it'll be, here's where we break down the first episode. No, this isn't no, no different than what I did with WandaVision. And I told you my excitement behind it. I do not judge that practice. I participated in it. So then I would be judging myself if I was to judge it harshly. I just recognize that it's out there. I'm not going to be the guy that does that. I was very excited. I couldn't believe Agatha Harkness had a profile, um, uh, had a had a featured role in a Marvel show, a Marvel production. It was very exciting. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting. Maybe something in Loki just tickles me to death and, 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 I, and I'll feel like I have something to say about that, but regardless of how I feel about it, which is, again, there's no judgment. It's just Titania proved my point to my son when he, cause I said to him, I said, son, if the elements that are circling about profit air tomorrow, everyone will know who profit is. And, and more importantly, they will care. They will care. They will consume. They will become experts. They will know the origin of John Prophet better than I do. And I wrote it. I wrote the origin of John Prophet. Okay. I scripted the origin of John Prophet. I illustrated the origin of John Prophet. So it's like, oh, no one knows who that is. Well, no one knew who Invincible was either. And now no one knows that Invincible doesn't publish comics anymore, that that run has ended, okay? That that multi-hundred issue run is collected in glorious volumes, hardcover, softcover, you bet, you can get them. But I have seen numerous times them approach my retailers and say, hey, you got the latest issue of Invincible? And they're like, well, actually, we have these great collections, but there is no latest Invincible because they stopped making the series. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to get 10 great episodes, 10 great seasons, much less episode seasons out of Invincible because the material is there. They, they are going to absolutely adapt it, just like Watchmen. Come on, when the Watchmen film was finally made, Watchmen was thirty years old. When the Watchmen series came of age, the you know on 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 HBO, the Watchmen series was 33, 34 years old. You good stories have a great and very long shelf life, and so again. Titania is now the 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 where you're going to get leveled up to expert status if you haven't already and and who knows what's next but most certainly in regards and it doesn't have to be profit let's say it's cyberforce let's say it's savage dragon okay people will immediately consume given all of the digital 
information out there, some opinionated, some factual. You got to figure it out, but you'll become savage dragon experts or cyber force experts, or in the case of this, profit experts, just like so many have become titania experts. And that's today's hot topics, expert level up on, on, on characters that no one heard of until the day, the day of, and then it is a race to educate you so that you at 16 can act like you were there, which is fine. That's great. Get educated. No one's against you getting educated. Have fun with it because there's an entire industry that is ready to feed you because again, you can, you can only produce what there is. A de- I mean, the desire has to be there for this much production to follow. Okay. So anyway, that was something that was, that, that was making me laugh especially when my son, my son like basically told me like profit is working at a disadvantage because nobody who knows that is. Tell that to, drum roll please, boom, 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 Titania. Okay, so that's today's hot topic. That was fun. Here's the deal. We are here to talk about the British invasion. Which British invasion? The first British invasion, which was, you know, deemed, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, uh, uh, the, the British tr- trying, to, trying to take back, you know, trying to get all their, their American, you know, um, servants uh, uh, back, back overseas back in, you know, 1776. Um, I'm not talking about the Revolutionary War. The first British invasion in the pop culture that really hit big was when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones hit and it was dueling mega British pop stars and all the other lesser knowns that followed. And certainly you're never going to match the impact of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. But what happened is 20 years later, a second British invasion, one that is closer to the one that we're going to talk about, hit the shores. And that was the overwhelming, um, uh, in, in just just... The overwhelming amount of bands that hit it big over here, uh, and I am talking about Duran Duran, I am talking about Bananarama Culture Club, I am talking about, uh, I am talking about Spandau Ballet. I, I mean, I, I am, I am literally. It's overwhelming. The police were British. Okay, the 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 amount of British Paul Young, um, you, you know, the, the, there was just so many British bands and acts that suddenly were topping the charts. George Michaels, wham, holy crap. I mean, um, um, uh, UB40, that, that there was so many acts. They were on MTV, they were on your radios, they were selling albums. And this is in the age where Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, like 83, 84, were battling for absolute dominance of the pop charts and had to share them suddenly with Boy George, Simon Le Bon, George, George Michael, um, because that British invasion came fast, that they, they had great hair, they were pretty, most of these, these, these male acts, these male bands, these pop bands from, from Britain, they had great voices, they had great production uh, value, they made great music videos, I mean some killer videos, again Duran Duran at the top of the heap with Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio, um, I mean, I was there. I was there. I was a sophomore. I was a junior. Um, um, w- th- those videos were just on nonstop because the music and the pictures together just blew your mind. You were so taken away by this stuff. So right around that same time that British pop music is having what they call the second British invasion, you know, again, and they, they, they formed Band-Aid and they made Do You Know It's Christmas, which again, set off an entire chain that we covered in a podcast about, about the hunger crisis and how in Africa and how the comic book world responded following, you know, Band-Aid and, uh, and We Are the World and then, and then the Live Aid concerts. I mean, again, that was, that was, that was started with the British musicians gathering, getting together and just crushing it 
with, you know, Do They Know It's Christmas, which just blew up. It was such, it was a great song. It was a great movement. But this, these British invasion, invasions can have giant repercussions. None bigger in the comic book world than Alan Moore. Alan Moore, he of the already aforementioned, heavily acclaimed Watchmen. We've done an entire, entire podcast on Watchmen, especially how Watchmen and Dark Knight pushed each other. You had the British Alan Moore pushing the, you know, uh, the, the the young hotshot Frank Miller as they as they would kind of channel each other and alter each other's work based on what was coming in because DC Comics was publishing both of those. They overlapped in time on the publishing schedule and all you had to do was make a trip to the office and, and look over the pages and see what was going on. Alan Moore of The Killing Joke, the essential Joker classic, Batman Joker classic. Alan Moore of Swamp Thing, okay? But the first time I heard of Alan Moore was on a... I had never heard of this character Marvel Man before. Not Captain Marvel. Not the, the Shazam character. Uh, Marvel Man was a long-standing British comic book character, very much like Captain Marvel in that Marvel Man became, was a young person that became a kind of a magical superhero being. And they were looking to... That, that has... That has uh, Connections to a man named Mick Anglo, and and I'm not here to debate or discuss the rights or or any any of the history of that. I need to get us right up to 1982 with Warrior Magazine. Warrior Magazine was an anthology book. My comic store um, carried them. They were tabloid size. They were like the, the the size of Star Magazine or the National Enquirer, so they're bigger than your normal comic book. And um, they were distributed over here to, to, to participate in comic stores. And it was like a heavy metal, except my issues that I got were black and white. They um, and, and they 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 featured all manner of different short stories, science fiction, superhero um, stories by British talent, up and coming British talent, established British British superstars. It's where I first saw Alan Davis's work. Um, it's where I first encountered Alan Alan Moore's work. And and in this Warrior magazine, they were doing segments for. Marvel Man, which had to be renamed when Eclipse published it, but in, in here it's still Marvel Man. And it is this reboot, this updating of this Billy Batson style character. Really, it, the, the, it is not an accident that, that it is so close to being Captain Marvel. It's like the British Captain Marvel. But within the first chapter, Alan Moore establishes that this man who becomes Marvel Man He's, he's haunted by dreams and nightmares and he's really plagued by the darkness. And, and, and the thing is that, uh, <clears throat> that, that he, he doesn't really understand what is, what is going on with, with these dreams and this darkness. And he's, and he's, he's a blue collar, regular, kind of regular, regular guy, regular run of the mill worker guy. Okay. That, that's how we're going to call him regular run of the mill, um, worker guy. And, and, and in his story, uh, which again, very, very, very dark. The, the the character's name is Michael Moran. Again, Billy Batson, Michael Moran. Okay, you got the 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 two D, the two Bs. You got the two Ms here. And uh, anyway, he 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 is. Um, by the end of the first segment, he remembers the word that he's really haunted by this word that he can't remember saying. But by saying it, he becomes Marvel Man, which is this really cool British inspired version. Of Captain Marvel, and 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 in the same way that Kirby and Simon made, you know, 
fighting American based on Captain Marvel, Captain America. I mean, it's, it's they, they, except in that case, they made both. But I'm just looking for like a, a similar echo here. I mean, the Squadron Supreme to the Justice League, which we've also carried. It was my very first podcast when I broke this down for you guys. And right now, Marvel is in the middle of a giant Squadron Supreme, you know, full multi-title, uh, multi-month um, um, crossover featuring those characters. So that could not have come at, 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 at a better time. But uh, the the thing is that um, that that with with uh, with Marvel Man's similarity to Captain Marvel, okay, and Michael Moran, Billy Bats, and all that stuff, it was a very adult version because now you've got this kind of blue collar blue collar guy who's who's kind of pushed around and feels inadequate, and his wife believes he's inadequate. Well, when he becomes Marvel Man. There's this awakening, and it's always you guys always know whether it's Iron Man the movie Downey Jr. or the every Spider Man film. Every superhero story, The Matrix, Star Wars with Luke Skywalker, the coming into the powers, the awakening process, the discovery of the powers is always so much fun to watch because you're inside that character's head and you're experiencing what they're experiencing. In this case, when Michael Moran is reactivated after being dark for so long and not remembering that he was Marvel Man, it's a little born identity thrown in there, okay? There's a little bit of a born identity in that he couldn't remember who he was, but now once he snaps and he's become Marvel Man, Marvel Man has become released again. It's like he he was a genie kept in a bottle and now he's unleashed. And uh, the thing that haunted me the most was that the wife is like, I don't really want to hang out with Michael Moran anymore. Can I just hang out? Can I just hang out with, with, with Marvel Man? And you're like, oh, oh man, this is crazy. Like that hurts. Like, I don't like you as your regular self. Could you just be this magical guy? And and literally, she wants to have sex with magical guy. And she wants to have relations with, with him and, 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 and get intimate with him and not really hang out with Michael Moran, the dweeb anymore. Okay? And that's very much what Alan Moore, you know, constructs in the story. And, and, and I just was always like... Ooh, I put myself in Michael Moran's shoes. Like, what if one day you come? It's the ultimate glow-up makeover, except devoid of 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 your own kind of personal transformation, other than that it's magical. That you said a magical word, and now your wife doesn't want you to go back being the regular guy. She wants the super guy. Alan tapped into that. It's creepy. It's fascinating. It's haunting. You feel for Michael Moran, but you also like it's it's the awakening. But it's an R-rated awakening. It's different than just hey, I can lift a house or throw a car and, and, and the identity and the darkness that comes with that. And then of course, kid miracle man is reawakened. And by the end of Alan Moore's, I think 16, 17 issue run, it is a vicious battle between what was kid Marvel man, which is Captain Marvel Jr. And Captain Marvel. Again, they're obvious echoes, except this is the R rated, the mega R rated version. The final battle, which is with John Toddleben art is one for the ages the entire Marvel Man later renamed Miracle Man because of the uh, problems with using the word Marvel for multiple different reasons. They, they opted to go Miracle Man. Eclipse reprinted them in color, put color on them. I had seen them only in black and white. And they were the, they were the talk of the town. They were the talk of the town. Alan Moore was giving you adult, violent, R-rated, um, haunting comic books that you were like, wow, these kind of make me feel different than like even like a... Uh, what I thought was adult was the Claremont X-Men or a Frank Miller Daredevil. Alan Moore could get inside people's heads and make people disturbed better than most. 
and 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 that is why I loved. And again, the art first by Gary Leach, then by Alan Davis. The end run is John Tottleman. It is spectacular. I'm not sure if Marvel has reprinted all of it because Marvel Comics, as a result of the fallout of the Neil Gaiman lawsuit with Todd where he won Angela, and I, I don't even understand. When I start reading it, I just kind of go blank. But somehow Marvel got these rights that were left with Neil Gaiman, and I'm not even sure then those didn't go on to be contested. But it doesn't matter. I'm talking about how I received it in the Warrior magazine and how Eclipse Comics republished them in 1985. So this set the table for Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which was then followed by Watchmen, and with the anatomy lesson upon which Alan Moore, his, his, his groundbreaking, critically acclaimed first issue of Swamp Thing, he turns everything on its ear. And, 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 and Swamp Thing is part of the green and is part of like this echo, ecological, godlike um, legacy mythology. And it's way bigger than anything that I had experienced with Swamp Thing before. And, and it was like Alan Moore had suddenly, in one fell swoop, on the, on the back of his Marvel Man slash Miracle Man work, then Swamp Thing, and then soon to follow Watchmen, he became the go-to British rock star superstar. When Alan Moore was in person in San Diego in 1985, um, and 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 walking around the show with his long, um, he had a huge, beautiful mane of of of, of long, almost permed curly hair. His his he's, he's a big guy too. Alan's not a small guy; he's a big guy. Jerry Ordway uh, was 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 had just met him, and Jerry Ordway was a really beautiful um, ambassador for me, and kind of took me under his wing uh, through correspondence and, and and different meetings. I had I had I had met Jerry, and he was making introductions in '85, and it and and also in in uh, at another show. I forget where Alan was, but 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 Jerry was always, hey, you want to meet Alan Moore and come on? It, it was brief. It was a brief exchange, but. Alan was big. He had his wife beater tank top on, his jeans. I think he had sandals. He was he looked like a some cross between Jesus and a rock star. And and uh, and he was absolutely the biggest star on the floor whenever he arrived anywhere he went in the 80s because Alan Moore was the voice that was challenging and changing. He was seen as an artiste. He was seen as deep and 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 resonant and and he was not seen as I I, I he was viewed correctly as this this really um, amazing new voice in comics. And again, he would go on to uh, greater acclaim with his follow-ups, his League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which uh, don't go by the film, which I think the film is fun. It is nothing like the comic. The comic is another R-rated, really deep dive into these classic Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, um, Mina Harkness, um, uh, 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 just... just just so the invisible man um it, it is it is uh it is it is such a really juicy piece of literature and kevin o'neill does to me another brit rock star standout does um groundbreaking best work of his career uh alan would do a tenure on some of my books that was as um groundbreaking in regards to what he did with swamp thing in it with what he was doing with my books at my Extreme Later Awesome publishing line, which was Supreme, and then intended later to be Youngblood and Glory. And we possibly won't get to the extension the extension of that until we do the British Invasion Part 2. But 
So Allen is making the world safe for British writers in a big way. And if you don't believe me, you got to go to Mr. Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison, who made his name writing this incredible um, series called uh, called Animal Man. Animal Man came out. I wasn't a big, you know, Animal Man guy. I wasn't really into Animal Man. So I'm 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 discovering Animal Man through through Grant through Grant Morrison, and uh, and the, uh, the, the the this is a, another kind of revamped character and. It was very kind of wild, out there, big ideas. And in the end, uh, I'm just going to, at the finale of his big run, Animal Man realizes he's in a comic being written by Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison is a character and a presence, more so a presence in the comic book. Jim Valentino and I were reading these Brian Boland uh, covers uh, at the start, Charles Truog on art. And uh, I mean, Animal Man came out like 87, 88, and turned everybody on its ear, and it was like, is he the next new Alan Moore? Well, here's the deal: um, if, if, if Grant Morrison knew very, very well, um, in, in you know what what he was doing in in regards to uh, to to being kind of the new hot British guy, in that there's an interview that he and Mark Miller were giving where he says, "You don't understand how hungry they are." Here it is. Uh, from a magazine called F.A., okay, uh, in 1989. Um, Mark Miller is saying the most recent and well-known work you've produced, he's interviewing Grant Morrison, uh, for comic books is Animal Man. How did a poor boy from Glasgow land a shot at his own DC title? Again, this is Mark Miller, Mark Miller of Kick-Ass, of Wanted, of The Ultimates, of Jupiter's Legacy. He is saying, interviewing because he and Grant had an established relationship. But this is how Grant is now coasting in. Alan Moore has left a big, giant mark as I'm this giant British thinker, okay? And my my work is seen as better than everybody else. I think, I, I can't imagine being inside, like, the, the, the existing kind of celebrated writers of the time, mainly Chris Claremont, how he would have received the acclaim that Alan was getting. Because Chris was really... He had the he had the microphone he had the podium for a long time and Alan came in and just best writer ever like moniker was dropped again I am I am 17 years old in 1985 when all this is happening so so I watch I then go work at a comic book store for about seven eight months in in 1980 when I'm 17 while Watchmen and Dark Knight are coming out so I'm I'm seeing firsthand the reception of this stuff so so Mark says to Grant the most recent and well known work you've produced for comics is Animal Man. For DC, how did a poor boy from Glasgow land a shot at his own DC comic? And Grant says, well, DC are, if I could say it, kind of like Grant, here, I'll try it. Well, DC are desperate for our breast. If you've ever talked to Grant, I just did a dead-on impersonation. I've had conversations with Grant that I'm like, I need a translator. Oh, Rob, hard to understand. Grant, you know it. Maybe it's something you do, you put on. But man, as a guy, I'll talk to you. And you can't really understand what he's saying. And you're like, what? Wait, because he told me to myself. Because I'm going to tell you about a conversation I had with Grant, where, where I was like, can you repeat that? I, I I can't understand that. And maybe it's on me. Okay, that's on me. This is my experience. Okay, very hard to understand. But what he says to Mark, Grant says, well, DC are pretty desperate for us Brits. Mark responds, desperate? Question mark. Okay, how did you get this title? Well, DC are pretty desperate for us Brits. Mark, desperate. Here it goes. Grant Morrison. A little bit of a long-winded answer here. Yes. Well, they had Alan Moore. And he was so successful 
I imagine they were just trying to repeat that success. In fact, in recent DC promotions, I'm being described as the new Alan Moore. This is Grant talking. I'm, I'm reading verbatim out of an interview in FA Magazine. Um, in addition, Neil Gaiman has been described as the new Alan Moore, as I'm quite sure has Jaime Delano. How many, this is, Alan, this is Grant talking, how many of us is it going to take to fill the great white, the great man's winkle, winkle picklers? How many of us is it going to take to fill the great man's winkle pickers? Okay, that the, the I'm quoting this. The whole thing's ludicrous, really. It's like the new Beatles. Who wants to be the new Beatles, Grant says, especially when I'm quite clearly Freddie and the Dreamers. The real ending of Watchmen should simply have been that they all felt stupid and went home. This is Grant. But it's turned into a very traditional comic book story with satellites that were somehow able to broadcast theoretical particles and the world being saved by a plot that was directly lifted from an old Outer Limits episode. Okay, so Grant works into this. Very loaded here. The British invasion is what we're discussing today, okay? Grant Morrison is answering Mark's question about how do you think you broke broke out? Grant says, well, they're desperate. DC's desperate, everybody. And then he says, they're desperate for us Brits. And then he says, I'm being described as the new Alan Moore, as I'm quite sure Jaime Delano is. They're describing me as the, in, in back-to-back second set sentences, he states in this interview, I am the new Alan Moore. I'm being described as the new Alan Moore. Now, then he goes after Watchmen, says the ending's stupid. It was ripped off. It was lifted from an Outer Limits episode, okay? Then later, um, in 1990, in a, in a magazine called Fear, Fear Magazine number 17, Grant Morrison says, the Batman movie made the Cape Crusader headline news for six months, during which times, during which time editions of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke and Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns have been in constant demand. Grant had written Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum appears to have caught on the tail end of that bandwagon. We've profited from this hype. Out of the 200,000 people who bought Arkham Asylum, mostly kicking themselves, saying, what is this peculiar thing? I thought, doesn't matter. That's their problem now, okay? He is really having fun being this British guy who is who is doing numbers and selling along the lines of Alan Moore and the very American, Frank Miller. Again, here in Amazing Hero, Amazing Hero was a my favorite fanzine. It was wizard, except it was nice before wizard and it wasn't in color it was in black and white and they didn't have contest and giveaways but um, i mean it had new covers drawn by your favorite artist just like wizard did but amazing heroes was one of my favorite all-time fanzines and in the february 1990 interview grant morrison is asked uh by amazing heroes it just says amazing heroes is the interviewer here uh what do you think about this brat pack thing all these artists and writers from from uh you know great britain heading off towards america Morrison says, that's Alan Moore's fault. Blame him. He did so well, they just had to come over here and find a bunch of new horrible people. Um, in response, Amazing Hero says, uh, Brendan's art is magnificent. People should stick his drawings on the backs of their jackets, which would piss him off to no end. Have you ever like been a teen idol, do you think? He asked Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison says, no, not like Alan Moore. He's been a teen idol. People have actually surrounded him on staircases. He's been trapped by the sea of people. No one bothers me at conventions. Amazing Hero says, so so no one knows who you are? And Morrison goes, no, I should grow a big beard. Um, Then Amazing Hero says, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. But in comics, there's this visible surfeit of politeness among a lot of professionals. If someone thinks, well, I don't know, this is Amazing Heroes talking. 
If someone thinks, oh, I don't know, Bill Mantlo is a dreadful writer, they'll never say openly. But now um, that slagging off gave you Black Kiss, um, now that slagging off gave you Black Kiss, Morrison says, no, 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 some people deserve it. Most of these people are utterly loathsome. It's hypocrisy. After all the things I've said about Watchmen, I'm sure Alan Moore will never speak to me again. I take things from everywhere. I, I use loads of quotes. I use a lot of samples, like in hip-hop, just inserted into the text from songs or, pl or plays and things. Most of the time, I don't even think people are going to notice. Amazing Hero says, do you get a good thrill from plagiarism? He goes, oh yeah, it's great, man. Um, so, so, so the, uh, the, the, the Brendan McCarthy is the Brendan he's talking about open uh, up here. And I think they're discussing Zenith, but, um, uh, finally in August, 1992, Grant Morrison comments on Arkham Asylum, which was a graphic novel. He did also Arkham Asylum was a watershed for me. This is in comic scene number 28, 1992. Arkham Asylum was a watershed for me because I think I finally found my own voice in comics up until then in the early animal man, for instance, I was doing what I thought was expected of British writers which was to be as much like Alan Moore as possible. It was the post-Watchmen realistic superheroes kind of thing. After that, I started to realize maybe what I wanted to do, and that bled into Doom Patrol and, and what happened later on in Animal Man. For me, it was significant. Again, I could tell Grant, when he made himself a character at the conclusion of the Animal Man story, and Animal Man's like, what? And there's Grant Morrison, and he's talking to Animal Man, and you're like, wow, I haven't seen this. The author is the character and kind of the, the missing piece of the big mystery that he had been building up over Animal Man, okay? Grant Morrison had a, had a full-page picture of himself in the back, okay? In the back. <laughs> he had a full-page picture of himself in the back of an issue of Animal Man, and he is wearing a chandelier. If you don't believe me and you're like, Liefeld, you're making this up. No, this is my discussion. This is my great discussion that I had with Grant Morrison in regards to, in regards um, to, 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 uh, to his, uh, to, to, to this photo where he's wearing the chandelier. It's a black and white photo and Jim Valentino are like, wow, look at, there's a full page picture of Grant Morrison in the back of Animal Man. And he's got a chandelier positioned on his head. And so in 2009, I am at a bar with Grant Morrison where that's where the party is, is, is being thrown at San Diego. And I am obviously a huge fan of everything that Grant's doing. And I make my way over to Grant and I say, Grant, I said, I'm a big fan. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of ESD. Big fan of ESD. I said, oh, come on, get out of here. And he goes, no, no, no. That Levi's had you there. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Put you on the map, man. Put you on the map. It's great. That's what I was trying to do with the chandelier on my head. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I was trying to stand out. I was trying to stand out, mate. And, and, and I'm like, that's it? That's why? He goes, yep. I was just trying to stand out. Now, Grant has written a huge book, by the way, um, that, is, uh, that, 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 is, that is really fun. That, that, that actually where he comments on Image Comics because when he was like, I'm a big fan, I'm like, ah, um, I'm not really sure that, that I'm buying this, but, uh, but shortly after or right around that time, he released a book, which is kind of his, uh, what do you call it? His, um, his take on, on, uh, on the comics industry. And it's called, if memory serves, it's called Super Gods. And in there, he has a lot of these observations that I've shared with you. But what you should have been getting again and again and again and again and again um, is is the fact that from what I'm talking about here is is um, is is that 
he was definitely mimicking himself, trying to be Alan Moore because Alan Moore was the end-all, be-all. He's the end-all, be-all of, uh, of, 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 of what, you know, the, uh, the, the, the British writer was supposed to be. He was absolutely, completely into, um, into emulating, again, as he said, what he believed, what he believed, uh, the, the, uh, the, the British, the, 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 the publishers wanted to, to see from, from the, uh, the British writers and and the way they would write and this this post this 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 post Swamp Thing Watchman Miracle Man kind of realism this uh, this uh, what do you say um, uh, the, the the darkness and and he was giving it to you until then he went I would say Grant really went into this giant over the top over the top approach again putting himself in Animal Man Doom Patrol went batshit crazy wild and you're seeing it you're seeing it now you're you're really seeing um you're seeing it in what he's doing uh y- y- you know uh, in, w- with what's been adapted you know in regards to uh in regards to um uh you know the Doom Patrol show that he's putting on and so Grant is um is we'll we'll get to super gods and parse that at some point, but he has great opinions. Grant is is unafraid to just call it the way he sees it. Maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe you don't, but he definitely takes shots at, at Alan Moore while saying I was trying to emulate Alan Moore. Now the Invisibles is a giant uh, Vertigo book that that Grant did that is seen as in some ways a template for what would go on to become the super success of. The Matrix movies, and that is a subject for another time and place. But he definitely um, his 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 run on the X Men is to me the last great run. And when I my bar for the X Men is the Claremont Burn Austin thing. One casual listen to maybe every other episode of my podcast will tell you how much I worship at the altar of the Claremont Burn Austin Uncanny X Men run. There are numerous podcasts on this search where I talk Burn Claremont X Men. It will come across what a groundbreaking run this was. It changed comics. It it, it put the X Men at the forefront. Everything that followed was an echo or a response or a reaction to what was going on with what these guys did in their multi-year X-Men run. Well, when Grant Morrison comes on in the 2000s, early 2000s, the book had become a little, a little. Um, there was a lot of different creative teams. They were trying to get something to stick. Grant comes on and does a reset immediately and introduces to me the last great, new, important X-Men character, which is the sister that we had never met before of Professor Xavier, Cassandra Nova. That's it. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Look up Grant Morrison's X-Men. Read the Cassandra Nova saga. The first year alone is mind-blowing. The first issue in one issue, he took my breath away. He kicked me in the stomach. I could not believe when Grant is on, he is one of the best, one of the tops. He was literally, he will give his break in this business to Alan Moore. And, and, and directly to the fact that DC, notably Karen Berger, the DC comic staff wanted more Brits. They looked over British work, the stuff that was coming out in Warrior Magazine, the anthology that I mentioned earlier, and they were looking to replicate. I didn't even get to Neil Gaiman, uh, uh, Garth Ennis, Mark Miller, other than when Mark was interviewing. And there's some weird blood between Morrison and Miller, but we're going to get to that in the British Invasion Part 2. We've set it up. Alan Moore kind of came out of nowhere. With with his Warrior magazine got picked up, got expanded. Eclipse, Miracle Man, Marvel Man was the was 
just everything to everybody. I, I, those issues still haunt me. Watchmen, obviously, every award it's ever won is deserved. In my opinion, Swamp Thing, this weird, macabre horror book. And then it opens the door for Grant Morrison and Invisibles and and Doom Patrol and 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 Animal Man and every and All Star Superman and 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 the, his amazing X Men run. Okay, but we have yet to then get what followed, which is Garth Ennis and then Mark Miller. And I mean, guys, it, these British guys. And again, the thing about Grant, he likes to talk. He likes to talk shit. Okay, and we're gonna delve into that next time. You guys, what a fun time! I love the Brits. The British are coming. The British are coming. It's not the Beatles. It's not the Stones. It's not Duran Duran. It's not George Michael. It's Grant Morrison. It's Alan Moore. It's all these guys. We're gonna continue to cover this in the weeks ahead. Thank you so much, as always, for hanging out with me here on Raw Observations for making this show possible. Here's what I need from you guys: spread the word. Tell your friends. Um, let's expand this base. Let's get more listeners. It was told to me a long time ago, the reviews, the ratings, five stars, those help. If you're enjoying the show, if you love the show, go on Apple, go on um, wherever you can leave a review, hit that five stars. Um, give me give me the love um, if you're feeling it. Only if you're feeling it. If not, don't bother. That's fine. Just continue to listen to me. I'm going to try and be here from you and and, 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 and and give you the best in comics and pop culture today. Don't forget the name we're going to remember for the rest of our lives. Titania! Titania. She happened. She happened last week and there's no turning back, okay? Um, I'm going to share with this this review from Josh19. Josh19. It's brief. It's great. Thank you. I have been reading and collecting comic books for 30 years. This podcast, Raw Observations, has made my comic experience way more fun. I'm a musician, and this podcast has given me more inspiration and motivation in my art than any musician podcast I've listened to. Thank you so very much. Um, John, Josh19, Josh19, just seriously, thank you so much for dropping that beautiful, loving um, review on me today. I appreciate it so much. You can find me on social media. Again, spread the word. Part of that is social media. Part of that is doing reviews. Drop me drop, drop me a review, a rating. Thank you in advance. If it's positive, I will read it on the air as I do at the end of every episode. I am on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld. Full name, blue check, at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Okay, blue check. Check me out. Look me up. I love to talk to you guys. I'm all over Facebook. I love hanging out. I love sharing ideas. I love getting the feedback. Um, I'm hyped. I hope you're hyped. I hope that you have the very best rest of the day whenever you finish um, listening to this. I know some of you listen to this at work. Some of you listen to this while you're driving. Whenever and wherever you listen to, I am so grateful. You guys know the deal. You are going to take care of yourselves. You are going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 